When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Age of Radio. listening to Texas History Lessons, a slow walk through Texas history made in Texas by a Texan for everyone everywhere. Let's take a little while to look more at this idea of Texas myth and the Texas mystique. And let's start by looking at one of the aspects that I brought up in an earlier episode about the list of things that play into this and the idea that Texas history for a long time was Anglo-centric. And what does that mean when we're looking at this? One of the early chroniclers that produced what's considered one of the standard early histories of Texas was an author named John Henry Brown. Now, Brown had been born in Pike County, Missouri in 1820. And his father, Henry S. Brown, was actually involved in a lot of things going on in Texas from 1824 until his death in 1834. Now, all this time, John Henry and his family were still living in Missouri. But John Henry... Brown finally moved to Texas in 1837 to live with an uncle named James Kerr. John Henry ended up working in Austin for the Austin, Texas Sentinel. And for much of his life, he would be involved some way in publishing and journalism. He also was involved in the events going on in the state of Texas and found himself at that time, participating in several skirmishes with Native Americans. And that included the Battle of Plum Creek in August of 1840. A little bit later, he fought under John C. Hayes at the 1842 Battle of Salado Creek. And he also went on the Somerville Expedition. John Henry Brown was a witness to and a participant in much of the history that he would later sit down to write. Now, after a brief sojourn back to Missouri, where he worked as a journalist, Brown came back to Texas with his wife in April of 1845, and he spent the rest of his life working for newspapers, serving in the state legislature, 
and served for a time as the mayor of Galveston before the Civil War. During the Civil War, Brown served on Brigadier General Benjamin McCullough's staff until McCulloch died, and then Brown went to work under General Henry E. McCulloch until his own health forced him back to his family in Texas. But even then, he served with the Texas militia and commanded the 3rd Frontier District. And he fought with Colonel John S. Ford at the Battle of Palomito Ranch on May 13, 1865, which was the last battle of the Civil War. An unrepentant rebel for a time, Brown took his family in June of 1865 to settle in Mexico with others who would rather change countries than live under the United States government. This did wear off, and in time he returned to Texas with his family in 1871 and was again elected to the state legislature in 1872, and he was also a member of the State Constitutional Convention of 1875. And in these later years, he increasingly focused on historical writing and published two books in 1887, The History of Dallas County and The Life and Times of Henry Smith. And he continued writing and later published two big works, The History of Texas from 1685 to 1892 and The Indian Wars and Pioneers of Texas. And this book came out about 1896. Among the many books on Texas history, you couldn't find an author that was much closer to the subject of the times and one that represented the thinking of many Texans in the 19th century. In his history of Texas, Brown wrote the following, Ours is not like the history of any other state of the Union, settled and fostered by progressive people in government and aided by great interior resources and means of transportation, of which practically Texas had nothing. Wild barbarians infested Texas, undisturbed until its settlement by Americans, and its frontiers continued subject to all the horrors, more or less extensive, of savage warfare from the beginning in 1822 to its practical cessation in 1876, a period of 54 years, beside the period from 1835 to 1845, inclusive of a state of war with Mexico. Her history, taken as a whole, is unique and unlike that of any other member of the Union. To be understood, it must be correctly given and carefully read. End quote. Now note this emphasis on uniqueness. And also note the wording, wild barbarians infested Texas, is a phrase that a number of people today, definitely the descendants of their original native inhabitants, would want to be changed if it were written today. That Brown believed this point of view is without a doubt, and it might even be understandable considering the times he and others like him lived in. But I believe that he was correct that the history must be correctly given and carefully read. And with that in mind, a more thorough and better context for the situation might be given to amend his biases. Now, in Brown's works and others of that time period, 
it's a good example of what Dr. Cummins and others talk about when they say there's an Anglo-centric bias in the works. The works of writers like Brown are valuable still for their recording of many important parts of the history of Texas. Now, Brown wrote with a vision of what he considered to be truth and justice. And he even wrote that when he was writing, he was eschewing fiction and exaggeration and that he was guided by the spirit of truth and justice. And he gave the book, this work, he said, is given to the people of Texas by her loyal son. Now, if we're going to take this work and still use it, we owe it to ourselves to continue digging deeper and asking some more questions. Another person that was very involved in the Republic years and the early statehood, to say the least, was Mirabeau B. Lamar, who I mentioned. You can go sift through his writings uh, right now at Texas History Trust and see how committed he was to recording the history of Texas even as he was living through it. And he wrote, Cultivated mind is the guardian genius of democracy. It is the only dictator that free men acknowledge and the only security that free men desire. Again, this idea is a good one, the one he shared here. And it is necessary to point out that there was a reason for his use of the term free men. There was a definite bias. It was a time when both Native Americans and African Americans and Tejanos were often, very often, viewed as and treated lesser and as inferior. And women also held far fewer rights than they do today and aren't that present in a lot of the history that was recorded cultivated mind is the guardian genius of democracy and should be the only dictator that all people acknowledge. Now, I hope this is the goal, and it is the goal for many people today that are wanting to carry on the sharing and study of the history of Texas. For example, the role of people like Melvin Edwards' ancestor that came to Texas as a slave and established a Texas family, and then as a free man, after the Civil War, raised this family. The work and activities of his life and his family is just as necessary to be shared so that the truth and justice are preserved. But for a long time, their history and their perspective was not considered as central to the Anglo-centric history. Now, I'm not trying to beat a dead horse, but there was a shift in the 20th century that we're going to get to, and we'll see how things have changed significantly for the better. Now, th this Anglo-centric bias is also apparent in the work of Clarence D. R. Wharton. And in his 1922 book, The Republic of Texas, A Brief History of Texas from the First American Colonies in 1821 to Annexation in 1846, he wrote, When the Austins came in 1821 and opened the way for people from the states, Texas history had its real beginning. Fifteen years later, San Jacinto was fought and won, 
and for 10 years more, Texas was a republic. Then, after one of the greatest political battles in American history, it became a state. This 25 years is the heroic period of Texas history. Now, I'm fascinated with this period, and his writing on it is valuable. But at the same time, I'm just as fascinated by the earlier period from the time when Texas was only inhabited by Native Americans through to the Spanish era and the Mexican period. So his assertion that the real beginning of Texas history was with Moses and Stephen Austin, personally, it's unacceptable. If you want to look at it like that, that's great. But you're missing out because there's a lot more deeper understanding and some really great stories that you're missing out on. But that is an example of the Anglo-centric bias. The early biases in Texas history are also evident in another quote from Wharton's book. He wrote, When the Democrats met in convention in Baltimore in 1844, the Whigs had nominated Henry Clay and declared against the annexation of Texas and ignored the acquisition of Oregon. Powerful forces among the Democrats, led by Van Buren and aided by Benton, worked to commit the party to the same course. But the Southern leaders seized the machinery of the convention, overthrew Van Buren, and named James K. Polk of Tennessee, and boldly declared for the annexation of Texas and the acquisition of Oregon. The election of Polk committed the American people to both propositions. The advent of Texas into the Union was followed, not only by the country west to the Pacific, but north to the present Canadian border. San Jacinto set the tide of Saxon supremacy toward the Pacific and was indeed one of the decisive battles of the world. For Wharton, and you can read between the lines as well as anyone else, his ideas are clear. It required Southerners to further the cause of justice, which was the assertion of Saxon supremacy. Now, to point out that this is an Anglo-centric bias and part of the myth of Texas, it's it's not a mean-spirited attack. It's just acknowledging what is. We can acknowledge their limitations and misunderstandings and their failings while appreciating their efforts. When Henderson K. Yoakum, who I also mentioned earlier, wrote concerning his work, the 1855, two-volume history of Texas from its first settlement in 1685 to its annexation to the United States in 1846, he wrote, It doubtless has many defects, and I can only regret that I have nothing better to offer. It is the fruit of days and nights stolen from other pursuits. I believe him. He's recognizing that it wasn't up to the standard that even he wanted to fulfill. But I still can respect his work. He drafted the charter, like I said, in 1849 for the college I attended. And he poured lots of time and work in recording the history of Texas. But he acknowledged the possibility of defects. That I respect. And I'm not too proud to admit that I do have limitations and I make mistakes and I'm going to make mistakes but the goal is always to do better and maintain honesty to the past and to do as good a work as possible now some people 
I think, seems to be the case. Some people get upset when historians point out that much of the early histories of Texas, like those of the West and even for the United States, were focused on an Anglo-centric perspective. As Sam W. Haynes and Carrie D. Wentz wrote in the preface to their book, Major Problems in Texas History, this perspective was steeped in lore and insulated by myth. This statement about myth, in my idea, isn't really a criticism even. The key is to acknowledge the myths and recognize them for what they are. They were created by those in power. And just because they are myths does not mean that they are without truth. They are just sometimes incomplete. They are key factors in the shaping of our historical memory. Again, to quote Haynes and Wentz, the way we create myths about the past can often tell us as much about ourselves today as the past itself. Bernardo Castrup, a philosopher, wrote, Myth is a story that implies a certain way of interpreting consensus reality. So to derive meaning and effective charge from its images and interactions, as such, it can take many forms. Fables, religion, and folklore, but also formal philosophical systems and scientific theories. You cannot understand Texas until you understand its myths. Among the early myths is that Anglo-Texas developed a unique identity as Texans that was shaped by the pioneer spirit and its struggles as a Mexican state and independent republic and as a United States state on the frontier. If you want to look into this, these ideas some more, you could look at Mark E. Nackman's The Roots of Texas Exceptionalism and Walter E. Bunger and Robert A. Calvert's The Shelf Life of Truth in Texas. And they break into this first myth and attest that this idea of identity creation had foundations of misconception rather than reality. Another myth of Texas history is the romanticized story of its fight for independence. There is also the myth of the free-willing Texas entrepreneur. A past myth, which definitely does not hold any longer, was that the Texas Democratic Party held a firm grip of sovereignty in Texas politics. The core episodes in Texas myth and history that often overshadow other parts of the story are definitely riveting. These are the stories that help shape the myth and mystique of Texas, the revolution against Mexico, the wars against the Native Americans for control of the land, which is interesting because in winning the War of Independence, did not win the state's land. Just as Spain and Mexico had not truly dominated it as well. Then there's the stories about the cattle drives and the oil boom, which brought real wealth and power to the state for the first time, really. And the profits from it were indeed used to fund much of the creation of the myth and promote historic preservation to help ingrain the notions of Texas exceptionalism. Texas, a poor state, used its wealth to build its mystique. Movies, television, and literature help make the Texas stereotypes a worldwide understanding. But scholars also played a role following Frederick Jackson Turner's frontier thesis. Through many works of the 20th century runs this notion. 
too much focus, some would say, on these myths gives a slanted view of our past and our actual identity. But they're based in fact. And they often take the focus away, some think, from, quote, gender relations, ethnicity, class formation, and urban and technological change. To add to the usual story does not devalue its many important features, though, in my opinion. To add more is to paint a more accurate picture, and what could be wrong with trying to get a closer look and a better understanding of the full story and a better understanding of the truth? Haynes and Wentz suggest that, quote, in its readiness to cling to the past, even as it embraces the future, Texas is exceptional after all. And they continued by stating, the past can be seen from multiple perspectives, each valid in its own way, but necessarily incomplete. Haynes and Wentz also argue that only by adopting a more inclusionary approach can historians hope to present a reasonably complete version of the past. Now, these are a lot of the ideas that are presented in that book of Sam W. Haynes and Carrie D. Wentz in their book, Major Problems in Texas History. And it's got some interesting and some thought-provoking ideas and they're worth considering. But let's move on. Now, there's a great book on Lone Star Literature called Lone Star Literature by a gentleman named Don Graham. And in his introduction to this anthology, he didn't rely on deep contemplative prose or philosophical thoughts on the nature of Texas identity and myth. As he said... After the battles of the Alamo and San Jacinto, which he called the stuff of legend, the myth-making was off and running, and it hasn't stopped since. Of course, these events are not all that makes Texas what it is, and besides the Alamo, Graham added the Republic, the Texas Rangers, cattle drives, the King Ranch, oil, the Kennedy assassination, LBJ, movies and TV imagery, and George W. Bush. Now, that's pretty straight and to the point, and all in all, not that inaccurate. Of course, these are all iconic symbols of the mythic Texas. Each can be, and has been, and will be the subject of many volumes of books and articles. And I can't really argue with the list, and you could easily add probably another 50 of your choosing. Symbolic Texans and things about Texas that makes Texas, Texas. Personally, I feel the most significant name missing from this list is Willie Nelson. You could also argue that George Strait, Barbara Jordan, Ann Richards probably would fit pretty good on the list. Um, things that Graham listed for Texas identity and uniqueness. Uh, there is something that Graham shows rather than tells with his list. And that's if there is a uniqueness of Texas... It comes in part from the Texans' tight bond to their history. The history of Texas has been portrayed as an epic romance from its inception, and this romance captured the imagination of the United States and beyond. Now, what more can we say about the Texas identity and mystique? Waco native Betty Sue Flowers, a graduate of the University of Texas and the University of London, knows more than just a little bit about Texas. 
And she, having worked on a project with Bill Moyers on Joseph Campbell and The Power of Myth, she also knows more than a thing or two about myth. In a 1999 essay titled Why Texas is the Way It Is, she expertly and artfully investigates the subject. Flowers wrote, quote, The mythology of Texas is known throughout the world. The mythological landscape of Texas appears in hundreds of films, and the stereotypical image of Texans is so familiar that all it takes is a hat, boots, a drawl, and attitude to make a character recognizably Texan. Now, using her essay, let's look a little bit more at myth. The word myth has many meanings. One definition, probably the one that angers people when historians talk about the myths of Texas and the myth of the Alamo, is that it is a story that isn't true. Now, this isn't really what we're talking about here. That is not the definition most historians, I think, are using when they speak about Texas myths. Some people are. I'm not. I'm looking at it a different way, and a lot of other people look at it a different way. Another way myth is used is when talking about old stories about ancient gods, Zeus, Jupiter, and so on. That is a little closer But the third definition is the important one to understand for our purposes. This type of myth, she says, is, quote, a story we accept uncritically, which embodies our values and expresses our identity. Now, this is key here. It is an idea, an image, an understanding, and, quote, usually tends to err on the side of the positive. But every myth casts a shadow. The bigger the myth, the longer the shadow side of the myth, end quote. Texas, the land of transition, is still in transition. The tales of cattle, cotton, and oil are still foundational points of our past. But the myth itself is still in transition. Myths evolve too. Texas is now a land of high-tech innovation and big business. The facts that are focused on may change, meaning we might choose to focus on different facts than we chose to focus on before. But the facts themselves don't change. Our understanding of them does. And we don't have control over the facts. They remain facts. Flowers wrote, while we may or may not have much control over the facts, we do have control over the plot. And it's the plot, the myth rather than the facts, that shapes the future. Now, perhaps this is what upsets people when the subject of Texas and its myths are brought up. Perhaps it's that they are afraid of how the myth might change. And it seems this might just be the case. Now, the Texas mythology can be broken down into four central myths. The hero myth, religious myth, the enlightenment myth, and the economic myth. The hero myth focuses on the individual instead of the community. It praises the self-made man consider how often we have been told tales of our Texas heroes, rugged individualists, wildcatters, and risk-takers. The religious myth is tied to the land that makes up Texas. Texas is the promised land, a land of opportunity. It is about the conquest and possession of the land. Before we move on to the next two core myths, let's consider these first two a little bit closer and look at how the identity of Texas and Texans are wrapped up in them. There's a really good book I picked up a while back. 
and it's edited and compiled by Mike Blakely and Mary Elizabeth Goldman. And the name of it's Texas Forever. And in this book, they sought to discover meaning in the Texas identity. They compile in it the thoughts of a wide number of people from long-dead Texas heroes like Sam Houston and David Crockett to a wide range of modern Texans, along with many others. Mary Elizabeth Goldman sent out queries to a pretty wide range of people asking, what does Texas mean to you? And she got some really thought-provoking and great responses. And to be honest, it was an inspiration to me when I did my own survey. And I likewise got some really great answers and positive responses from a wide group of people. And we'll be getting back to those survey questions in the future. But right now, the focus is on this book and what they did and the answers they got and how it will help us and compare these answers to the ones we got from uh, my survey group. Now, Mary Elizabeth Goldman's father is one of the people that participated. And he said that at the age of 20, he saw Texas as a land of opportunity. This is a key thing you see repeated throughout recorded history of Texas, people saying it was a land of opportunity. It's the promised land in a way. And when he was 30, he said he still had visions of greater opportunity in Texas and the people. The theme of increasing opportunity continued into his 50s and then on into his 70s. And when he was answering the question for his daughter, he was in his 90s. And he concluded, quote, I still see Texas as a land of opportunity for all people. And through all these years, the one thing I've always noticed about Texans is a genuine friendliness, not just for each other, because Texans have never been clannish, but there is a real eagerness about Texans. Texans are proud of this land, and I think Texans want everybody to experience the spirit of Texas. I admire Miss Goldman's father's optimism. Now, his experience has not always been probably some of your experiences and my experience, but I recognize this Texas ideal and this idealism about friendliness. The notion of opportunity and friendliness is deeply embedded in the Texas myth and mystique. Not everyone will agree with him, but I love his outlook and his hope that it can be a reality for everyone someday. Goldman also added her own thoughts in her essay, In Search of Texas. The people of Texas, she wrote, represent nations everywhere, yet proudly call themselves Texans. We come to this land for the opportunity to enrich our lives and the lives of our families for education, for medical treatment, for adventure, to stretch out and kick back. Legendary Spur Award-winning author Elmer Kelton, who, as I said, I've been making this a year of Kelton. I've gone through over 20 books of that he's written this year alone. And i got to tell you, if you haven't yet picked up an Elmer Kelton book, I encourage you to do so. There are several great ones to choose from, but, but more on that later. Kelton contributed this idea... Quote, if Texas has icons recognizable worldwide, they are probably an oil well and a cowboy on horseback. 
but these are too simplistic to represent fully a state like ours. One thing that has long impressed me is its great diversity, due in no small part to its size and the wide variety of terrain, even climate that exists within its borders. It has piney woods and blacklands on the east, desert and mountains on the west, high plains on the north, and chaparral on the south. He added that there was diversity in the cities of Texas as well. Amarillo, Brownsville, El Paso, Texarkana, each, Kelton wrote, has its own distinct character. And it's interesting how this answer by the great writer Elmer Kelton is so similar to many of the answers that I received from people across the state that answered my questions. Another Spur Award-winning author, Jory Sherman, said that he found Texas to be a place with, quote, majesty and allure that found harbor in his heart. He continued, quote, Texas is a place where dreamers go, a place where dreamers are born. It is a place where you can find out who you are, where you came from, and where you are going. He added later, Texas is that vast and mysterious country of mind and heart the land that drums at your temples like a heartbeat, that sings in your veins and hums in your ear like an ancient song that whispers like the Gulf of Mexico in a seashell and on the wind that blows across the Monaghan's plains. Non-Texan author and historian Bill Groneman, an expert on the Alamo, wrote about the allure of the state as well, describing it as a place... You the United States settlers could go to be reborn, he credits this feeling of rebirth to the land and its vast richness. To be a Texan meant to engage in the promise of opportunity. There we see it again. This idea of Texas being a place of opportunity comes up really, really often. I think a lot of people agree with me that it's not necessarily being born in the state that makes you a Texan. Um the first governor of the United States state of Texas to be born in Texas was Jim Hogg. And he was born in 1851 and elected as the 20th governor in 1890. And yet we look back to all these heroes and leaders of early Texas who were not born there as Texans. Something to think about. And some of the survey answers of people reflected this idea as well. It's a state of mind more than a state of birth. Stanley Marcus of Neiman Marcus fame really hit on something about the Texas mystique that Dr. Cummins also taught in his lectures. Marcus wrote of Texan overpride. That's the word he used, overpride. Marcus remembered that the exaggerated boastfulness of Texans really came to life in the 1930s. He should know because he was born in Dallas in 1905 and lived through this. Marcus pointed at Texans' enthusiasm for bragging about the state's size, and we still do even after Alaska knocked us out of the size title spot when it entered the Union. Marcus also accurately associated much of myth-making and over-pride was fueled by the fortunes of East Texas oil fields. He concluded quite honestly and well that Quote, Texas has a lot to be proud of, but it is unnecessary to be immodest. I think these few statements are pretty good examples of the ideas involved with the Texas myth and mystique in practice. 
going back to flowers essay, her third core Texas myth, the Enlightenment myth, involves the notion that Texas is a land of liberty. It was the land where rugged individualists found a land of opportunity being wasted, and they carried on the Enlightenment revolutionary ideals of liberty and freedom from tyranny. Flowers wrote that the United States myth that is related to the Texas myth evolved to include other parts and values, the melting pot, the immigrant, and the great cities. The Texas myth, for a long time, in ways did not evolve. It froze in place. Flowers wrote that Texas remained in a kind of perpetual state of primal rural independence of mind, and that is important for our myth. Another feature of Texas myths is that we hold our myths as myths. We tell them consciously as myths. This is an important thing to consider, and it is a beautiful aspect of Flowers' investigation in her essay on Texas identity and mythology. She explains that because we know the myths are myths and still tell them, then we can recognize that, quote, we have the power to transform the story of who we are and what we aspire to be. And yet another aspect of the myth that we love is about bravery. So when people start to criticize Texas and its myths, when people agitate over facts that aren't usually embraced in the telling rather than get angry or be afraid, embrace the mythic ideal of Texas bravery and listen, debate, engage, and acknowledge the truthful and factual parts of the criticism. Because if you recall another part of the Texas identity and myth is that of friendliness, hospitality, and kindness. The friendly, hospitable, and kind Texan still exists, but it seems like they're getting fewer and fewer in number. Now, the problem of calling out the myths of Texas is that the myths are part of Texas, and the subjects of those myths, like the Alamo, Cowboys, Longhorns, Oil Wells, is that they are real and significant things that did shape Texas. To deal with the myths, however, requires acknowledging them and looking for what might be missing. Texas is everything that those myths are about, and a lot more. It is also the dark shadow of the myth that has often been downplayed and ignored. It is not either the good or the bad. It is the good and the bad, and the beautiful and the ugly. It is simultaneously a land of opportunity filled with beauty and a landscape bent on destroying those that sought to tame it. Ask any farmer. Critics point to the preoccupation of storytellers and historians with the Texas Revolution, the Republic, the Frontier, and I suppose the criticisms are valid, but to acknowledge does not mean you should be ashamed for being preoccupied with those things. They are some fascinating stories. The lesson to learn from the criticism is that there are multitude of things that are equally fascinating and that you should educate yourself about as much as you can because they all have had a part in creating Texas. Okay, let's take a quick break and we'll be back to share some more thoughts. I'm going to let the final word on the subject for this episode be from the writings of someone else rather than me. And hopefully what he says will help tie together all of this that I'm trying to share and 
make it more clear. John Graves is one of my heroes and one of the finest writers I have ever read. He had a very small literary output, but a profound one. His 1960 book, Goodbye to a River, is a perfect book, in my opinion, as close to a perfect book, at least, as I can ever hope to find. In it, he mixes history, observations on nature, philosophy, it's part memoir, and a lot of wisdom, and he blends all this in a really powerful way. So, as is often the case, I defer to the words and wisdom of others I respect to get to the core of what I myself am grappling with. In an essay that he wrote pondering the myth of the cowboy, Graves addressed the idea of truth and ideal art and myth. He, like me, prefers to dismiss the notion of myth in its, quote, cheapest sense, that of pure falsification, which isn't really myth at all. He wrote, quote, Art does deal essentially with the true, myth with the ideal, and behind even the ingrained commercial purpose, the constant idiotic mayhem, the misapprehension of fact, the childish and puritan twisting of motives and conduct of the cowboy myth, and I'll add the myths of Texas, Western history, and even just history itself in its broadest sense. Quote, there does lurk a set of ideals of honesty and courage and staunchness and other basic virtues. He continues to say that art, likewise, concerns itself with the ideal, sometimes by portraying its absence. Sentimental distortion and misfired talent, he says, often muddies the understanding of truth as ideal in art and history. And he continues, art can thus become myth or myth become art, so that many times it's not possible to say which is which. Graves went on to say that myth can influence the direction of human life, as can art, and may even influence its live subject matter if the timing is right. The ultimate point to these thoughts, I'll add, is that, like Graves also writes, the myths of art and history got their hooks into his psyche, as it has to me and, I dare say, a lot of us, if you're listening to this podcast. And the myths of history are powerful things, and they must be acknowledged and tried to be understood. And in acknowledging them, we can learn more and move beyond them closer to the complexity of the truth in history. Now, these are all very important lessons to keep in mind as we proceed with the podcast. I needed to make one distinction between myself and what professional academic historians are supposed to be doing. They're expected to focus on the proper process and methodology of history, and I have and intend to continue to apply this methodology. But I am not an academic historian, as I said before. I don't get a paycheck from an academic institution to teach and study history. Now, while that would be nice, not being tied to these restrictions or expectations frees me up to look into all aspects of Texana. And I will because it's interesting and it's fun and it's educational as well. When I deal with folklore, music, literature, or any other topic that some would argue are outside the realm of proper history, I will make it very clear. 
looking at every avenue on which the myth and mystique of Texas rides will make our understanding of Texas history, I believe, much more rewarding and interesting. Another thing I want to stress is that even if you don't have a PhD, a master's degree, even a bachelor's degree in history, or if you do and don't work as an academic historian, does not mean that you can't study or have an opinion on or contribute to sharing Texas history or any kind of history. It doesn't mean that you're not a historian. It just means that you're not a professional historian. I practice somewhere in the gray middle ground. I learn from some great historians how to do history, but I'm not an academic in any way. Just because you didn't pursue history as a career does not mean that you don't have something to gain or share from the study of history. As the respected Southern historian C. Van Woodward provided a great comment on the separation of academic and amateur historians, he said, quote, professionals do well to apply the term amateur with caution to the historian outside their ranks. The word does have deprecatory and patronizing connotations that occasionally backfire. This is especially true of narrative history, which non-professionals have all but taken over. The gradual withering of the narrative impulse in favor of the analytic urge among professional academic historians has resulted in a virtual abdication of the oldest and most honored role of the historian, that of storyteller. Having abdicated, the professional is in a poor position to patronize amateurs who fulfill the needed function he has abandoned. Now, what really is my point? My point is, and the reason I did the last episode on all the resources available now, is that now is the time where lots of people can get involved and make discoveries and share stories because the resources are being laid out there for us and made readily available. Like from Texas History Trust and the Portals of Texas History and the Texas State Historical Association, there's all kinds of materials and stories that can be shared and written about and talked about. So that's my challenge to you is find something you're interested in, learn more about it, and share it with other people that would find it interesting and helpful. So there you go. That's a, that's a lot of information in this episode, a lot of different perspectives and thoughts about myths and the nature of myths. But the main point I wanted to make, I guess, in closing is that myths exist as ideals of our past. They are the things that shape our identity, and they are still being used and created even today. For me, getting beyond these idealized mythic aspects of Texas and getting closer to the real history, that's even more rewarding, personally, that I've discovered. And some of the things you can learn are pretty pretty inspiring when you get down to the reality of what the way things were. And there's lots of ways to go about doing that, and we'll be getting into that in the, in the future. So thanks for listening. As always, thanks to Derek McClendon for providing the theme music. Be sure to check his songs out everywhere you listen to music. And um, we'll be back soon with another episode. 
Thanks to everyone who supports the show through Patreon or by clicking on the link in the show notes and buying me a cup of coffee. It is greatly appreciated. We'll be back with another episode soon, looking into some more interesting ideas. And uh, thanks for listening. Take care of yourself. Take care of each other. Be kind. Adios.